Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that thinks the Burnley-Newcastle narrative is the most captivating storyline this season. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I've spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. Today has, of course, been an interesting day because the transfer window closed at 12 o'clock last night and fans everywhere have been eager to see just how the dust settled. It's fair to say that some clubs have fared better than others over the course of the January transfer window and we're going to be breaking it down. We're going to be talking about the signings that most interested us and that we think will have the biggest impact going into the second half of the season. And we're also going to be focusing our efforts a little bit on two clubs in particular, one of the ones you just mentioned there being Newcastle, and the other Everton, because these two have pretty, you know, you can't really argue against it. These two have seen the most amount of action and change to their starting eleven and setups. So without further ado, I just say let's start with Newcastle. Yeah, absolutely. The, the most amount of action and also two clubs that have found themselves at the start of January and for Everton sort of halfway through January, but also it was leading up to that point in sort of real crossroads scenarios. Uh, Newcastle are obviously sort of thinking about fighting the drop. Everton are sort of also potentially, you know, worrying about getting to that point if they don't make a lot of like serious changes, obviously change their manager, but we'll get on to them a little bit later. Newcastle are a really interesting one because obviously they had that takeover a few months ago. Um, as soon as they got taken over, all the, the, the you know, hypothetical 11s were coming out and Bappe and Haaland uh, partnering each other up top in the, in the black and white. Um, but uh, it was a more realistic window for Newcastle. Uh, a lot of the players that they chased after, like, for example, Sven Botman of Lille, uh, ended up eluding them, for now at least. Uh, and they went for a number of what I would call more pragmatic signings. And actually, when I looked back at this today, and I really thought about a lot of these signings, it, it, I, I liked it, at least in theory. I thought a lot of these signings are not necessarily the most exciting, but like some of them could turn out to be really, really, really sensible pickups. I'm thinking primarily of Chris Wood, um, not least because of the loving we have for the big man here on the podcast. But I think, yes, it's a lot of money for a, uh, you know, older player who has got a decent scoring record, but not a ridiculous scoring record. But it's, you know, pulling the rug under from from under Burnley is such a potentially huge impact on the end of the season. And you can almost sense the narrative because these two sides play each other on the last game of the season of sort of these two duking it out to see which one's going to sort of scrabble up to 17th place and stay safe. And it being sort of Chris Wood who plays a major role in one way or another. Yes, an interesting narrative indeed. And we are, as you say, big fans of Chris Wood on the podcast. Burnley have, of course, replaced him with someone that we're going to be talking about later on, Woot Weghurst. Um, which I'm sure I've brutalised um, from the Bundesliga. But yeah, I, Chris Wood, I think, is I a good signing. I believe it's about Weghorst. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, should just let you say it first, shouldn't I? <laughs> um, Chris Wood is a good signing. I, I think he... It's interesting because he was kind of one of the first signings after... He was the first signing after um, Kieran Trippier, wasn't he? And a lot was made of you know, the fact that, A, he was worth 25 million which I don't necessarily disagree with, really, um, and be that, you know, is this the level of excitement that Newcastle fans can hope to expect in the coming weeks, in the coming years? Um, is players like Chris Wood and maybe not someone with a little more glitz and glamour to their name? Um, but I think he's just going to be old Mr. Reliable, 10, 15 goals, 
five fifteen, five to fifteen maybe, not ten to fifteen um, goals a season, and I think he will just do a really solid job for them. And and they need more goals. It's quite interesting because a lot of people have identified that in these five signings that Newcastle have made, and obviously they they just missed out on deadline day on Hugo Ikatike uh, of uh, Stad Reim, but um, of the five signings they've made four of them look quite short term obviously Matt Target is alone so he is only there for four months but a lot of these players if Newcastle do stay up which obviously is by no means a guarantee you you, you can't help but feel that players like for example Chris Wood and Dan Byrne are not necessarily going to be long-term options because if Newcastle stay up you would imagine with the financial backing they have they'll be pushing to be top half next season and I don't think that Dan Byrne or Chris Wood would necessarily fit in a top half uh, side so you can imagine them sort of immediately having that turnover which isn't necessarily a concern for Newcastle with this financial clout if they're able to fully access it Uh, and I do kind of it's not refreshing because it's in a way the opposite of that but it's interesting to see a club sort of really going for it just bombarding a lot of short-term options just desperately trying to stay up and I guess the question I want to ask to you and it's you know early doors lots of things can happen do we think they can beat the drop? Do we think they've done enough in this window? Um, what challenges are there? Do you think they've got everything correct? We've already talked a little bit about Chris Wood and the double-edged sword that he brings and sort of strengthening them whilst also weakening Burnley. Um, what, what's your thoughts on Newcastle? Will they stay up? Will they go down? Well, I think they've done a pretty solid job of, of you know, preparing to try and stay up. I think... Um... The main thing is, you know, obviously we did a kind of a transfer window for each club. Who would we sign? Which one signing? And and the real flaw there is we're talking about one signing. Which one signing can elevate them above all else? And realistically, it was going to be a couple of different players. And I think they're going to benefit massively more from having bought and brought in many different players rather than just one, you know, massive signing. Um, and, you know, and across the field as well, attack, midfield and defence. Exactly. Yeah, so I think in that sense it's good. I think in terms of, we've talked a little bit about how, you know, often with clubs that try to grow too quickly, um, that can be a bad thing. So I don't mind that there are these kind of, you can call them interim players, you can call them stock gaps. Um, As you say, they're not going to be necessarily key starters for top half clubs. But I don't mind that this change is incremental. I don't mind that they're taking their time, they're bringing in, a little bit more Premier League quality, a little bit more experience, and their building. I think that's quite good. I think you can definitely see, as you mentioned there, the fact that they failed to get a couple of players. And I think this transfer window was probably quite eye-opening for them in the sense that, you know, it's it's a club that is newly rich with owners that are new to the game. And, well, not, not necessarily new to the game, but, you know, new to owning a Premier League club. Um just because you have money doesn't mean that everyone's going to just bow bow down to you and, and what you want because as soon as everyone realises you've got money, then they're going to try and get as much as they can from you. Um, so I, I think they will have really struggled from that and probably learned a few lessons from the people that they missed out on. Um, but, you know, as things go, they managed to get um, things done over the line and I think that... They set themselves up pretty well. I mean, I'm I'm excited to see um, Bruno Guimaraes, for example, um, uh, in the midfield. I think he he could be really exciting. I think Kieran Trippier is really really smart. Um, I think that even Matt Target, I really like as a signing. I would pre- prefer it for Newcastle's sake 
if he wasn't on loan. But still, I think I think this is solid business. Yeah, I mean, but but unless he is also sort of viewed as one of those stopgap players, and you know, next window they're going to be going for you know Ferlan Mondi or someone, um, uh, and just really trying to sort of bolster with the with with as much quality as possible because there is the chance that in the summer they'll be able to sort of access more funds and the sponsorship bans will be lifted and they can really start to flex their financial muscle um I, I do think it is you know as close to a squad overhaul as you can get in january obviously a notoriously hard time to make big signings um and obviously yeah as you've mentioned there there is at least one player in uh bruno gamares G- one that I'm definitely butchering um, because the Brazilian Portuguese uh, pronunciation is always uh, it was butchered universally by people in uh, in this country. Apparently, Fred is pronounced Frazy, uh, but we all just call him Fred. Um, but yeah, he, I, I, I don't think anyone's really recovered from from that knowledge. <laughs> Well, exactly. But but he's 24 years old. He is, you know, a real talent. Obviously, being chased by Arsenal, was being chased by Everton, um, and for good reason. Um, he, he's a really interesting talent and is, you would think, one of the players that they'll have looked at as sort of go, okay, when we stay up and when we kick on next season, he'll be a centrepiece of that. Kieran Trippier at 31, Chris Wood at 30, Dan Bud at 29, perhaps not, but they are all massive upgrades on what they had for the time being, especially when you're considering Chris Wood's case that Callum Wilson is injured. Um, so yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how they go one of the big questions as well when a team makes a lot of signings at once is sort of how personalities mix together and also crucially how quickly players integrate into the Premier League and I think you know even though someone like Dan Byrne for example might not have been their first choice against someone like Sven Botman actually in the short term when you're having a challenge like trying to stay up with only a few games left to play he might actually be the better signing just because he knows the Premier League. He's not going to have that refraction period. He can get straight in there and play the next game. He can start the next game because obviously it's a while, so he'll be able to get into training. Wouldn't be surprised to see most of these players start Newcastle's next game. Whereas someone like Sven Botman, even if he did go straight in, might take him a while to adapt to the pace and the technicality of the Premier League. Might not, but it's something we've seen happen so many times. So I think it's really interesting and I think made proved to be very smart that three of these five signings that Newcastle have made have been from within the Premier League and in, in, in Kieran Trippier the fourth he's formerly Premier League so has also played in the league and knows the the star very well um, and the only one who doesn't have the league experience is that sort of more exciting younger player in Bruno Gamarish. Yeah definitely and I think um, the, the, the thing that's exciting about it is just that this is all new I don't think there's ever been a, a case study like this where a club has has been bought but have been quite restricted in terms of what they've been able to do not just because of financial fair play but also because you know it's January as you mentioned there and people will be unwilling to do business for them um, without you know getting the the most value they could possibly get for their players so yeah it's interesting to see how they've done they've gone about it it's going to be really interesting to see how these players that they've brought in will do because again this is all kind of new um, so I agree with you. I think short term, the fact that they've got Premier League players in there already is great. And, you know, when it comes to whether or not they'll stay up, I mean, they're only a point off 17th place with a game in hand. So just by the pure numbers of it, absolutely they could stay up. Um, it, However, Norwich are on the up. Um, Everton, we're going to talk about that, them later, but they've also made wholesale changes. Um, so it... It's going to be tricky, but numerically, absolutely, they could stay up. And I think they've done a pretty good job of getting themselves into the best possible position for February 1st. 
Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I'm, I'm looking forward, not least because it's always exciting to see new faces in the league and, and seeing sort of, um, you know, how new players... Uh, or, or even sort of new players in the league and also seeing how old players interact with new teammates like for example someone like Chris Wood how's he going to interact with Alan Sam Maximan that's a really exciting partnership for me um, how those fullbacks are going to interact with Chris Wood as well is really interesting um, Bruno Gamaris is, is someone that I don't think many people outside of France have seen a lot of uh, up to this point unless you're a very keen observer of the league on Uber Eats um, but I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what all the hype has been about absolutely yeah couldn't, couldn't agree more Let's look at uh, our next focal club who have got not only several new players, but a new manager as well. Uh, and that is Everton. Uh, we spoke about Everton's first two signings a little bit when we talked about Rafa Benitez uh, before he was sacked and how he had brought in the fullbacks Vitaly Mikolenko and Nathan Patterson. Um, those two were then followed by Dele Alli, Donny van der Beek, and uh, Donny van der Beek on loan, of course. Uh, and also... Uh, Anwar El Ghazi on loan as well. So, five signings. They've also lost Luca Dean, uh, sold him to Aston Villa, of course. An interesting window. There's a couple of players here. Uh, don't really feel like we need to go over Mikolenko and Patterson because we've met them already, but I want to talk particularly about Deli Ali and Donny van der Beek um, because here are two players that have very similar situations. They've both got a big point to prove for different reasons. Um, Although Deli Ali has only started, I think, eight games this season for, for Spurs, uh, and Donny van der Beek has sort of <laughs> knows that all too well. He'd be, he'd be begging for eight games at United. They both have a real point to prove, and Deli Ali has that background in the Premier League, whereas Donny van der Beek is coming in very, very new. But are these players necessarily a good idea for a club that he's in an impact? Is signing players that couldn't necessarily cut the mustard elsewhere always a good idea? Sometimes. It does work. We can think of the very recent example of uh, Jesse Lingard last season uh, going over to West Ham and had been really disappointed for United for God knows how long and then suddenly turned it all around. So Dele Alli and Donny van der Beek could do that. But there's a lot of other players who can't cut the mustard, go somewhere else. I'm thinking, you know, again, a very recent one off the top of my head, someone like Willian, and it just looks like the club who bought that player or loaned them has sort of been sold a bit of snake oil and tricked. Yeah, sure thing. Um, it's... I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, Deli Alley is such a a divisive figure. It almost feels like you're you're buying a lottery ticket rather than, um, you know, securing your future. Um, so I think they could well have maybe benefited from bringing in more established players. But then again, you know, as you say, it ain't always easy, especially in January. Um, isn't, so, isn't it interesting that I just want to I want to let you finish your point, but I just wanted to pull on that Dele Alley is buying a lottery ticket because I I was also thinking about that today because of the you know the dust settling on his transfer. Isn't it interesting that like Dele Alley more than perhaps any player I've ever known gets that still today? Like when's the last time Dele Alley had a good season? And even now people are like, well, he could be good. And and I also believe that I, I saw this transfer and I was like, he could be good for Everton. But isn't it weird that we think that when the last time we had a good string of four or five games was like. Four or five years ago? I mean, he's the perennial blows hot and cold, isn't he? And every every time he looks like he's maybe suddenly going to turn a corner, he just, you know, completely doesn't. Um, and the way he exploded on the scene in 2015, joining Spurs from MK Dons, jumping leagues to do so, it, it had a real... I don't know, there was this excitement, this enthusiasm around him, and he was immediately very good. And I think the the thing is, at least in my mind, and I've kind of alluded to this before, 
Ali has kind of almost become Spurs' failures. I, when I think of Spurs failing to live up to their potential, I think of Ali as that essent, like quintessential player that that represents. Because you know, for as much as Spurs have have failed to win anything, someone like Harry Kane has obviously still been very good individually. Hyungmin Son has also been very good individually. And when it comes to like a player with a really high profile, but that looks to be struggling at all times. It has always been Deli Ali, at least in my head. So maybe that's why you know you we place him above above all others in in this as like having this potential. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if Everton is necessarily the best club for him. I feel like Everton often becomes a little bit of a um, a place where players go to die, at least in the last couple of years. Um, I would have preferred to see him at. Maybe West Ham, just because they did so well with Jesse Lingard. Maybe Brentford, weirdly, because I think that I would have been really interesting to see how Deli Alley operated within a team that put a lot of emphasis on things like statistics um, and how they got the best out of him, like Moneyball style. Because Deli Alley to me, feels a bit like a Moneyball player. Um, but he's joined Everton. Obviously, he's got a manager that knows what it is to be a successful attacking midfielder they're very different players so i would caution against the the assumption that deli ali is going to learn everything from frank lampard and become this amazing box-to-box midfielder but you know there is also enough common ground there that it could still work out he could be an inspiration he could you know it could be a a turning of a corner we just don't know yeah, I mean, it's interesting there because you said that Dele Alli sort of, uh, to you, sort of, is sort of the personification of Spurs' failures sometimes. And I think it's true that he was also, for a time, almost the personification of their success. He came in really early on in Pochettino's manager, I think like two months after Pochettino became manager. He obviously, as you mentioned there, had that sort of fairytale rise to success coming from MK Dons, immediately hitting the ground running, really being an impactful player for, for club and country. And, you know, he scored a lot of really nice goals on the way there. Um, and then when Spurs started to do poorly, his form took a dip as well. And I just look at that and think like, if someone had made like a real pie in the sky, like, you know, you know how when like Man City were signing like Fabian Delph and, and players like that because they need to fill up their English quota. If, if someone like Man City had signed uh, Deli Alley, then I'd be going like, maybe this will sort of, he'll see himself surrounded by winners and he'll elevate himself. But if we can look at the player as having a career that has been defined by the success of the team surrounding him, why haven't Everton in massive crisis decided to bring him on board? Well, I think that's what makes it so interesting because, I mean, if if City had signed him, I would be thinking, well, we're never going to see him again because he is just there to fill the quota on and on the off chance that he might decide to be amazing in practice. But the fact that Everton need him means that he might have to step up. That being said, I think Spurs have probably needed him for a while and he hasn't always stepped up. But the other reason why people think Deli Alli is quite good is because, let's not forget, amongst all of these blowing hot and colds, He's got 51 goals in 181 games. That's almost one in three for for an attacking midfielder, which is not bad at all. No, it's it's not bad at all, but a, a big part of that is going to be the fact that when he's not scoring, he doesn't play. So, you know, he, he's had a pretty iffy season this season, so he's only started eight times. He scored or maybe even played eight times in the league. Um, so, you know, the goal-to-game ratio is safe when you're never playing. <laughs> well, so you think... For Spurs, it's come to the point where, like, oh, Deli Alli played well in training? Okay, let's play him now. And then he does well, and then it's like, oh, Deli Alli didn't... You know, he, he didn't look like he was on it, so he's not even going to be on the bench. 
Yeah, I think successive managers now. Nuno tried to make it work with him in sort of a central midfield role and then sort of ended up not really using him. Conte has sort of got there and just been like, not even going to try it really. <laughs> yeah, and given you, him sort of you very, very sparse cameos before selling him at the first opportunity. Um, but I do think it's worth mentioning also that's interesting about the Deli Alley deal. And actually, perhaps in, in a, a, a period of time where we've spent a lot of words calling Everton sort of like very rogue and how they conduct transfer business I'm actually really interested about and I, the specifics to this will, will matter I'm really interested about how Dele Alli's transfer fee has been structured because to hear it reported free, by he? well this is the thing to hear it reported by all the red tops who sort of sell their papers by saying the biggest possible fee he cost 40 million pounds however <laughs> to actually see it he was a free transfer it is a transfer made entirely of add-ons, which I've never seen before. We've seen, obviously, you know, clubs that have, you know, it's 30 million potentially rising to 35, 40 if he scores 15 goals or if you qualify for top four or whatever it is. But to have no... Fi- so it's, it's really interesting now because I, I would love to, and we may never know, but I would love to see what the exact sort of things are in terms of, like, when Everton will have to pay various amounts of money. Because... There is a situation, in theory, where like it could work out that he has an okay start to life at Everton, and they finish 15th, and they don't really have to pay anything, and the next season sort of turns it on, and Tottenham are like, wait, what? Or conversely, it could be the other way around, they have enough to pay loads, because the, the add-ons are like, he plays 15 minutes, you have to pay 10 million. So I'm really interested to see what that ends up being, because it's just, you know, a lot of these add-ons are sometimes really unrealistic i remember when uh man united with a big one when they signed um anthony martial and i think he cost them 50 million rising to 80 million but they've just never paid any of the add-on money because it was stuff like winning the ballon d'or scoring the winning goal in the champions league final being yeah, player of sure. the year or whatever um and and yeah it'll be interesting to see what those clauses are because I, I think that's really interesting and actually in a way I, I kind of like it as a mode of business for someone that you don't because it's kind of it's kind of like pay pay what you get, right? It's it's like in in a sense, it's the most sort of meritocratic transfer that you can think of. I mean, it, it definitely is that, and yeah, you're right. It's um, it's very smart from Everton, and it's not quite like buying a a lottery ticket. Like I said, it's more like I don't know, like was it Skybet? That's Super Six predictions where you can just put in six scores for free, and if you get it right, you win loads. But if you don't, then it was free and it meant nothing. Well, yeah, exactly, yeah. D- depending on what the clauses are, if un- unless there are any clauses that are like really, really like simple stuff that he's going to do full stop, like oh, he plays five games even as a sub. But it- if they're all things like well, Everton have to do this, Everton have to finish above this position, Everton have to he has to have this many sort of goal impressions with goals and assists and that sort of thing, then yeah, Everton could be in a situation where win win because if he's I mean, terrible, presumably it's, it's not going to be. It's going to be a mixture of the of the two because Spurs wouldn't have just essentially let him go for free and demanded like a bunch of of stuff that they also think probably isn't going to happen. Yeah, but 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 then but then like, what's the point in instead of being like, give us five million rising to forty? What's the point in going give us zero rising to forty? Oh, by the way, one of the conditions for his five million is he has to arrive and set foot on Finch Farm. Like what? Right? That, that that's where I'm so struggling. Why would Spurs? What would be the interest in them? putting in sort of like a... Or for Everton, just for the books, what would be the point in either club agreeing to a pointless add-on that's guaranteed to happen? There must all be things that there's at least a chance of them not happening, right? Well, sure, but I mean, I think there's... There'll be like realistic ones, like Deli Alley makes five 
um, appearances, and then there'll be slightly more ambitious like ones like he gets ten goals. Like I think it'll be it'll be a mix of the two. It won't be like Deli Ali has to you know arrive at the training ground once a month because um, because <laughs> that would... gets out of bed on time ten million. <laughs> that would be uh, pointless. Um, yeah, I mean, Bill I guess the, is, is putting sleeping pills into his, into his training. <laughs> juice <laughs> well i mean like beyond that i mean what is the point of letting him him go at all unless it's literally just to try and free up some of the wage budget um because yeah, he... it just he hasn't been impactful or great for years i mean he had that that pass to to lucas mora in the champs league semi-final that got them through to the final but he just he when, when you really strip back and look at it and i saw one tweet that was sort of having a bit of a rib at spurs fans expense um so i apologize to any spurs fans listening in advance but it was sort of going like spurs fans getting all glassy eyed about dele alley a player who in his seven years only scored more than 10 goals for them twice and who has won no trophies in his time there um and it is kind of true. It's a very harsh way of looking at it. And I think as an English young prospect and someone who at one point was sort of very much the star of, of upcoming English talent, it's hard to accept. But he has, when you really think about it, not been impressive for a long time now. He certainly hasn't. Um, and it could well be a, a match made in heaven. They need each other. And so they make it work. It could well be that, you know, the toys get all thrown out the pram. And... Deli Alley's back to square one in terms of finding a new club and and finding a new Kickstarter for his career, but well, I I, th- I think it, there's a chance. There's a chance. I feel well, good it's, about it's, it. It's interesting now. I want to get back to that that idea. It could be a match made in heaven, or indeed, uh, you didn't say, but but I will a match made in hell because I I want to sort of have a similar conversation there about the new manager they've brought on board. But just before we do, I just want to go over Donny Vanderbeek uh, really quickly. The other high-profile player they've signed, obviously Vanderbeek, most notable for not really playing that whole that much for for Manchester United. Um, I'm really interested to see how he does because unlike Dele Alli. He has neither given us big reason to get excited so far during his time in the Premier League, nor has he given us reason to think he's not at the level. Um, when we've seen him play at United, it's been in a situation where he's either coming on very late, and oftentimes when players come on very late, they're not necessarily playing to their strengths, they're just playing according to how the scoreline is going. So, you know, if you're a midfielder like Van Der Beek is, and you're 3-0 up and you get brought on the 83rd minute, you're not being told, break the lines, go through midfield, and you're just being told, just lock it down. Conversely, if you're 1-0 down and you get brought in the 83rd minute, it's just go hell for leather, try and get the ball forward. Don't necessarily think about sort of knocking it around and for sure, waiting yeah. for a clever pass. So, yeah, so he's, he's always been a part of the plan B. Exactly. And, and between that and the fact that when you think about how Man United have used a lot of their players recently, players like Marcus Rashford or Anthony Martial or, or Paul Pogba spring to mind, even if he was starting every game, I don't know that we necessarily would have seen him play in the way that most naturally fits him. So I'm hoping that he will get that chance at Everton and we can kind of see the player that got United so excited in the first place and was so good for Ajax. Because to be honest with you, much as we were talking there about, you know, Leon and Bruno Amaris, I, I have not seen a, a lot of Ajax play. I'm not a big Eredivisie uh, watcher. So I've seen, you know, his brief cameos in the Champions League, but other than that, it's been his time at United, or, or lack thereof, really. So I'm really interested to see what his actual play style is and how he fits in in the Premier League, and if United were justified to to leave him out, or if in fact they've they've really missed a trick. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I would agree. I don't always watch, you know, I don't watch Ajax on a weekly basis, but I did do a fair amount of looking into him when 
you know, we were just trying to work out how he would fit into Man United system, for example, and and what kind of player he was. And it seems like he, on one hand, is very intelligent in terms of his movement in midfield. Um, he's a solid passer. He's quite well-rounded. So I, I think, it, I think he could. Well, I, I hesitate to say he could do a job in any system because clearly not because Manchester United never found a system that they felt like putting him in. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think... Uh, it's tricky. I'm, I'm equal parts thinking that Frank Lampard doesn't really know how to get the best out of him, but also thinking that maybe Donny van der Beek's good enough that he can kind of bypass that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, like, like I said, I, I'm I'm so not fully clued in as to what he can do because, of course, as well... There was a, the, the tournament that I was really looking forward to before the tournament started, really looking forward to seeing Donny van der Beek and get a real sort of good look at him and sort of understand how he was going to perform was the Euros and he got injured and missed that. So Donny van der Beek is sort of this nebulous plan. I'm sure if I was, you know, if I, if I really wanted, I could go and look back at the sort of the, the Ajax tapes beyond just those cameos in the Champions League. But it's not a huge stretch to imagine that his game has developed even since then. So definitely excited to see him at Everton, um, whether it's good or bad, just to see what the player actually does because we've kind of been denied that so far yeah no we definitely have I mean it's going to be interesting as well to see how though like Donny van der Beek plays with Deli Alley. I mean that I'm going to be fascinated by because they could cancel each other out they could somehow find out that they're you know best mates from another life and and just start firing yeah absolutely it could really be a match made in heaven and obviously you know Everton have needed these big midfield oh, signings obviously Obviously, they lost to Guffey Sigerson at the start of the season for, you know, reasons beyond football. Um, and also, injuries mean that Tom Davis, Fabian Delph, and Abdullah Decoria are all out for at least a month. So they really needed a couple of midfield players. Dele Alli fills in that that ten role they've sort of been needing all season. And Donny Van Der Beek, as you mentioned, what I've heard and what I, the limited amount I have seen is is an all rounder. So he could fill in sort of a little bit further back. Some have said his natural position is the six. He could be more of a sort of box to box player, maybe even a sort of advanced player playing just off Dele Alley. Um, I'm I'm really interested to learn more about this player. Um, but let's not dwell too much on the signings because there's one other big change that's happened to Everton. Um, and I want to sort of bring back the conversation to that sort of thing you said there with Dele Alley, a match made in heaven or a match made, you know, in hell and one that could work out one that couldn't. And that's Frank Lampard becoming the manager because that is such an interesting pairing, Lampard at Everton. It is such a huge gamble for both parties because for Everton... As we've mentioned several times over the last couple of episodes talking about Benitez, they are at a point where they really need to start getting better soon, otherwise they could be in hot water and they could end up potentially flirting with with the bottom. For Lampard, he has sort of spent a long time out of the job since uh, Chelsea sacked him, turning down jobs, looking at which job would be right, and he has multiple times said when sort of interviewed in this in-between period, the next job I get has got to be the right job for me. And you kind of get the sense that if Frank Lampard can't get something out of this Everton team, his managerial career could really take a a, a beating and it could really be difficult for him to sort of get another top-level job again for a long time. What's concerning about that is that there could be a situation where this Everton team doesn't really work out and it has nothing to do, or, or it's not entirely his fault. Because as we've discussed, there's a lot of issues with you know injuries, with the players that have been signed, with the amount of manager churn that's happening, meaning no consistent style has been established. So... You know, what you have here is, on the one hand, Everton could have signed their death warrant, and with the same pen, not yet dry, Lampard could have signed his. 
Very much so. And as you say, it is a very interesting decision on both sides. I mean, I think for Everton, when they looked at who was available, I think, you know, there are definitely a couple of options. Someone like Slavin Bilic, for example, that I think reeked of, of the past and they weren't fresh, they weren't new, they weren't exciting. And they just had Rafa Benitez, who definitely couldn't have been described as any of those things. So I understand this this maybe desire to have something new and young and vibrant to complement all of these players that they've just signed. Um, and so, you know, I, I can understand why they would look around and ultimately they needed to make a decision on who to sign. I could see why they chose to sign Lampard. Um, amongst you know the other options and then from Lampard's perspective I I wonder if he sees it as obviously more of a long-term job because that's been his aim Um, and I think firstly he will have identified probably quite correctly that Everton are the biggest club that are going to come along for a while to to ask if he wants to be their manager Um, so that would have been appealing and then I I wonder if he's looked at it and gone Everton are floundering, yes, but, and this is where it's dangerous, he might have thought to himself, Everton are too big a club to go down. That can't happen, and I think that, you know, with a couple of simple changes, I should be able to turn things around. And as a result, he maybe sees it as, yes, a calculated risk, but one, the the payoff of which is worth the small amount of risk that he, he maybe sees in it. Um, and, and I do think that it could well prove to be that neither side really estimated how tricky this position is that they're in because they've they've brought in loads of new players. They're massively struggling. They haven't won any of the last five games and they've lost four of them. Um, and they're in free fall. They need change quickly or, or they're going to get caught up. And, and and that's just the on the pitch stuff. There's also so much off the pitch stuff with all the, all the people that have left in the in the sort of top level. Obviously, yeah, Marcel absolutely. Brands left and took a lot. There's there's huge infrastructural issues at the club that even a top level manager with 30 years of experience would go. Christ, this will need some sorting out. Frank Lampard, who was at Chelsea, which is you know not always great for the managers, but for the most part, a pretty well run club. Um, they get the transfers in, they get the players they don't need out. If if he struggled there. And now he's going to Everton, which is, you know, he is going to have to be sort of really figuring things out on the fly well, and trying to get new people in I mean, and new hires. So- he, he was a little hamstrung at times for uh, transfers at Chelsea, but sure. Well, yeah, it, it, it works both ways, the, the, the sort of the machine behind uh, the operation of the club Oh, no, I mean, they, there was a transfer ban as well. Um, well, yeah, 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 but in, in terms of some of the players he wanted to sign, like Declan Rice, as I thought what you were talking about. but but Yeah, you know. for sure. C- certainly, but I'm I'm just talking more about sort of like all the sort of little things that you you, you know the average fan or or whoever doesn't necessarily think about on match day is stuff that still needs to get done for a club to run properly, and Everton don't necessarily have that, and it, it just feels to me this scenario with Everton and Frank Lampard, it's kind of like if I might use a crude metaphor, the two of them have got really drunk on a night out and sort of seen each other across the nightclub dance floor. (laughs) (laughs) They've seen each other across the nightclub dance floor and Everton have gone, oh yeah, he looks all right. And Frank Lampard's looked over and gone, oh yeah, not half bad. And there's going to come a point when they wake (laughs) up and they sober up from the the night's libations and they're going to go, Everton are going to go, oh my God, legendary Frank Lampard, sure, but his managerial record is not amazing. Everton Lampard's going to go, oh my God, this is an absolute organisational disaster. There's not even someone to like unlock the gates at training. I've got to do it myself to let all the players in. 
yeah, um, I think that could well uh, that could well prove to be the case. I mean, I one of the main reasons I'm nervous is just because we've just talked about these two potential potentially exciting signings, Van der Beek and Deli Alley. Sure, they could they could turn out to be good Everton players, but no part of me thinks that they're going to turn out to be good Everton players without really really excellent management. And I don't know if Frank Lampard has the the career to to show that he is that man. I don't know if he has the experience of man management. Sure, he he's been in an elite dressing room for you know fifteen twenty years over the course of his his career as a footballer and as a manager, but. Will he have? Will he know enough about how to motivate people? Will he know enough about how to get the most out of people that that aren't, you know, his natural compliments? Uh, you know, by by which I mean players that are like him when he was a player. So yeah, that makes me nervous. And then the other part you're talking about, like you know, going outside just the on the pitch stuff. Looking at the the two clubs below him, Newcastle and Norwich. I mean, they are both looking like they could well be turning things around. Norwich are two wins on the bounce and have just made it out of the um, the relegation zone, which, you know, is something that you laughed at me for saying was possible about a month ago. Um, and Newcastle, as we've just said, have, have bought a bunch of new players and haven't lost any of their last three games. Christ, I mean, even Burnley, they're in 20th, but they've just signed the, the most prolific striker besides Lewandowski, that the Bundesliga has had over the course of the last four years. So it, yeah, there are going to be a lot of people breathing down Everton's neck. And the more the pressure builds, the more it's going to be really important that he gets it right. Well, that that's the thing, isn't it, really? It's like timing and momentum are so important because there is the game in hand situation to consider. Everton have played uh, two games less than than Norwich and and one game less than Newcastle. But Newcastle and Norwich both hired their managers a few months back and are sort of in the process now of getting that all sorted out. Frank Lampard doesn't really have the luxury of getting four or five games to implement it because at this point in the season, if he loses those four or five games or draws them or drops any sort of point, that could be it. That could be, you know, sign, seal, deliver, you're down. And, and what makes it more interesting is that Everton's first game back is against Newcastle at St. James's Park. Gosh, I mean, if that isn't going to be, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a real a real fight for the for the points, then I don't know what will be. Well, well that, I mean, that uh, unfairly really to, to Frank Lampard is like, it's a real, I mean, every game really for this point for both teams is a must-win game, but that is, if Everton lose that game, Newcastle will leapfrog, it's a, it's a real six-pointer, um, and at that point to have someone who's sort of very fresh-faced, not had a lot of top-level jobs, aside from the one that he got working at his dad's company, basically. Um, <laughs> Chelsea. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> it's, it's not really... Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it'll be interesting. I mean, we you know we look at someone else. There's a another very prolific Premier League midfielder who had a sort of unexciting managerial history beforehand who's come in this season and been very exciting in Patrick Vieira at Crystal Palace. So maybe that will be Frank Lampard here. But it, it it's an interesting one to be sure, um, and one that I will not be entirely surprised if it blows up. I'll be pleasantly surprised if it goes very well, but I will be surprised. Uh, I will not be surprised if in four months' time he's out of a job. I mean, it does just at times feel impossible that Everton would get relegated. And I know that that's the wrong way to think about it, but they just, in in your mind, are such a Premier League entity that it feels strange to consider the fact that they're even 
in a position where they might get relegated. Um, but it everyone's much, a Premier League entity until they aren't. You know, well, Leeds it, fans will tell you exactly. I mean, it very much could happen that that they go down. I mean, looking at that Newcastle Everton match, you've got to think that um, Eddie Howe fancies his chances of six of three points, <laughs> six points. Well, yeah, th- th- three points, but yeah, three points taken from from the opponent as well. Yeah, no, it, you think he will. Big boost, lots of ambition shown. He's had a bit of time to sort of get to know the players and get to know how they're best used. And they've had some good results recently in Newcastle, whereas Everton, as you mentioned, even before Lampard, were in a, a bit of a downward spiral. Um, but definitely one to look forward to there. Let's quickly go to Usus Trivia before we go into our sort of miscellaneous transfers of interest. Um, and I want to go for a transfer-inspired bit of Usus Trivia, a, a very current one, uh, which actually came into effect yesterday. And that is uh, talking about a player that we talked about earlier, uh, Dan Byrne, who Newcastle signed. And now that they have signed him, Newcastle now have the league's tallest outfield player. Dan Byrne stands at six foot seven or 2.01 metres. And also the league's shortest outfield player in Ryan, Ryan Fraser, who Ryan is Fraser. five foot four or one point six three meters. Um, I hope at some point we get a hilarious training photo. Um, I really hope the Newcastle don't disappoint me <laughs> in giving me what I'm deserved, what, what I deserve. It would very much be the what was the name of that? You know, the, the traditional strike partnership of like Heskey and Michael Owen. It's like a little man, little and large, little and large, just the one. Um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't realise it was literally the the biggest and the smallest. Um, that's brilliant. Um, well, I mean, we also want uh, Ryan Fraser to get as much playing time as he can so that he can take the uh, the title of shortest player to get sent off away from uh, Tariq Lamptey. So you know, there's. I don't think it, I don't think he needs a lot of playing time. <laughs> Just a couple of games. A couple of games. We get the picture. He gets the red. Everyone goes away happy. <laughs> Eddie yeah, Howe exactly. cries himself to sleep. Job done. <laughs> Um, that's, that's 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 the ideal thing he gets sent off and as he's sort of walking off sort of like really really forlorn Dan Byrne comes to comfort him and sort of just pats <laughs> him on the head just envelops him <laughs> um, so, I love okay. my shirt Ryan you can hide there for the rest of the game the ref will never know <laughs> I would love to see a picture of, um, of him wearing uh, Byrne's shirt that'd be brilliant Dan Byrne's kit <laughs> That's how they should have. That's how they should have announced them. He's wearing each other's shirts. That was so good. Um, so for um, for use of trivia this week, I've also kept it very on brand. Um, I was looking at um, a a study done by Deloitte, um, which got published this week into um, the the dealings, the transfer window, um, and in terms of like the amount of money that got spent, and it's it's pretty wild. Um, so. Did you know that the Premier League, this transfer window, this January transfer window, spent almost 50% of the entire spending across all five top leagues, which is mad. Um, So almost 50% of of gross expenditure. Um, And then they also um, spent, I think, up to four times more money than they spent last um, this time last year. Last year, they spent 70 million in January. This year, 295 um, so absolutely mad in terms of, of uh, you know, the, the levels that we're seeing from um, from different clubs. And in in nowhere else is, is this more prevalent in the fact that for one of the first times ever, the bottom five teams have accounted for more than 50% of all of the signings as, you know, this, this battle for staying up 
just keeps on getting more fuel to the fire. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, those are all very interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, bi- a big part of all of that is going to be impacted by just, you know, the magpies, obviously. They did spend £92 million, pounds, and you said, what was it, 292 this year as compared to 295, 70? yeah. So, like, over a third of that is Newcastle. But even so, like, even ignoring Newcastle's newfound wealth is over, is more than doubled from, you know, 70 to, to 200 million. So that is that is crazy. I mean, more than 50% spending from the bottom five teams. That, I, I can't, I couldn't find anything saying that that has never happened. But I would be so confident to say that has never happened. That is so novel. How much of that will have been... New, I mean, it's very novel, but is that not just because what Burnley spent twelve million on Valverde? Cost Norwich okay, spent but nothing. but still, we're talking about um, say if Newcastle spent ninety, that means the other four clubs still have to spend sixty million, and that that's still true. that's still massive. That means there's another big spend. Oh, it's, it's Everton. It's Everton, of course. We're yeah, just yeah, yeah. talking about them. Yeah, it'd be Everton. Um, but yeah, I I just so so surprised by that. I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah in, inflated by these two spenders, and it's weird that Everton are in the bottom five, but just a, a statistic that I would be very surprised if it ever gets gets replicated. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a sign of the times. Uh, lots of teams scrabbing to stay up and, and lots of big changes happening, for sure. Uh, let's look at a couple of various transfers of interest. One name that has sort of popped up from minute one is uh, Valt Weghorst uh, to Burnley. Uh, some keen listeners may remember us talking about Valt Weghorst at the Euros. He was, uh, if you remember, Rupert, our player to watch for Group E, I believe it was. Um, and we sort of talked about how he was a, a very interesting player and ended up not having the most spectacular Euros. I don't think he had a huge um, role to play for them there, but uh, had the odd cameo uh, where he did quite well. And now has gone to Burnley. And I've I got to say, Burnley may be the only club that could sell Chris Wood and replace him with a taller striker. <laughs> <laughs> it is wild. I mean, I think for the purposes of uh, you know the rest of the season, I will be referring to Valt Weghorst as Dutch Chris Wood, Chris Wooder, <laughs> Chris Wooder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect. We did it. Also, they, I they signed him. I, I saw a Burnley part to call him like the what was it? Um, Valt Weghorstorus. <laughs> Vegasaurus. Well, yeah, they um, do you see the uh, the, um, yeah, the the video the, the announcement, yeah, uh, which the is Jurassic brilliant, by Park the way. If, if anyone hasn't seen the the unveiling video of uh, Weghorst, um, would very much encourage you to hop on Twitter and check it out. It's probably on YouTube. This is what I love, though. I saw that and I was like, "This is this finally happening? Burnley are becoming a fun, cool club." And it's like I was saying in the in the um, in the transfers episode. I want them to sign like Jeremy Doku because I want them to become like a cool hipster club. Like Maxwell <laughs> Cornet is basically the thin end of the wedge. From now <laughs> Sean on, Sean Dyche is a hipster. Tell your friends that, that look. Next season, they're going to pull like a full leads, like one to eleven. Every player will have a top knot uh, or a man bun, and uh, <laughs> Sean Dyke will have been found dead in his car. <laughs> <laughs> Crikey! <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you've if you've looked at any of this, um, but about the the apparent influence of um, Weghorst's um, vaccination status um, and why he got signed. Have you come across this at all? I, I had heard that he was an, like not someone who wanted to be vaccinated, but then I saw that and I was like, oh, that's kind of crazy. And then I was like, oh, but it's football, so like that's not exactly a novel opinion. A lot of players don't want to get vaccinated. 
Yeah, it's not a novel opinion. And and despite the fact that key players like um oh, who's uh Bayern Munich's um Joshua Kimmich um come, came out and famously famously like uh, publicly said that he is against getting the the vaccine. Um, it's still a, a big source of contention in Germany, and um, apparently one of the reasons why they wanted to get rid of him was because he had COVID in October. So the the three month um, period for which he was unlikely to pick up COVID again was had expired, um, and they just wanted to get rid of him. They wanted him out because they didn't want him as a potential risk in the the club. Um, so Burnley welcomed him with open arms. Um, and it's it's interesting because it's all it's just there's now a new reason why you know you get players on the fly. It's not just because they fall out with the manager that you get them cheap or their contract runs out. Um, apparently now also vaccination status will have at least in the short term an impact on whether or not players move on quickly. And yeah, the result of that is that he's gone for half the price that they sold Chris Wood for. And I think two thirds is market value, and at twelve million, I think he's a he's a really good value for money signing. Yeah, absolutely. Looks so, um, as you mentioned there has that fantastic goal scoring record, second only to Robert Lewandowski in the Bundesliga over the last four years. Um, so yeah, it could be a really really interesting signing, and not a huge stylistic change from the striker they're already accustomed to. They'll still be able to lump those balls into the box if they fancy, although I like to think with the new hipster Burnley, it'll be silky dribbles through the defence by uh, Maxwell Cornet, uh, floated onto the head of Valverde. I think, uh, you know, true true hipster is just going against the grain. And I think um, the more Burnley Burnley can be, you, the, the more hipster they'll become, just by nature. You think that's the, that's, that's the true counterculture? Burnley. I think that's that's the path of success. Yeah, I think um, you know I I'm, I'm intrigued to see how him and uh, Maxwell Cornet link up, but uh, you know football's full of mysteries. That's the big one. I think we're all excited about. Let's talk about Luis Diaz and Liverpool. Uh, that is another really exciting signing. That is a player that Spurs were obviously chasing. Uh, Liverpool swooped in and picked him up. Uh, Luis Diaz, uh, for those not familiar, is a winger from Porto. He's scored 14 goals in 18 league games this season so far. Really, that's a good pickup. The reason this is an interesting signing is not just because it's a good player added to Liverpool. But it's a good player in a certain position added to Liverpool at a time when both Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah are down to the last 18 months of their Liverpool contract. And Luis Diaz is a much younger player. Um, he's only 20... Uh, oh, he's 25, actually. So, so But he's, he's still younger than the other players. Sure. Um, with, with a big future ahead of him. Could this pickup suggest that Liverpool are planning to lose at least one of Mane or Salah in the summer? Um, and... It might sound weird to suggest that Liverpool would sell either of those players. I mean, maybe Mane less so. He's had a less impactful season. But certainly, I think everyone would think there's no way that Liverpool would ever sell Mohamed Salah. Um, but I'm actually going to come and sort of throw a little bit of my own tinfoil in here. Just because, yeah, do you remember when we spoke in the summer about the Harry Kane transfer and how... Tottenham Hotspur, perhaps more than any club at the moment in the world, are sort of strongly against the idea of selling one big player to furnish the rest of the squad because they have a very recent reminder of that not going well in Gareth Bale when they sell Gareth Bale and sign those seven players. Sure. Taking that into account, the opposite is actually true of Liverpool, and Liverpool have a very recent reminder of selling their best player and that actually taking the club up another level. Luis Suarez or Coutinho. 
uh, with Coutinho. So when they sold Coutinho to Barcelona for 140 million and then pretty much used that fee exclusively on signing Virgil van Dijk and Alisson, which turned them from a team that had, you know, some exciting spots because obviously Mohamed Salah's fantastic, but they had Suarez and that team couldn't really do it. And and, and they had um, Torres back and that team really couldn't do it. Having that top level centre-back and keeper has really helped elevate into that next level and win the first Premier League for them and, and, and win their sixth Champions League. So while I don't think they would ever do it lightly, uh, it, it wouldn't be the most shocking thing in the world for Liverpool if they could get the right price, which would probably be these days something like 200 million. I, I could see Liverpool being more susceptible than many other big clubs precisely because they've had such a positive experience doing that in the past. It's an interesting point. And I mean, they definitely have historically been not a selling club because that's that feels too patronising, but they have often let their best player go or their, their highest profile player, um, you know, Xabi Alonso left, Fernando Torres left, um, Coutinho left, Suarez left. Um, all of these huge players that kind of defined their teams to an extent um, moved on and Liverpool just kind of carried on with their business. And in recent years, it has worked very well for them. So mm. it's an interesting point. And yeah, I think um, when we did our transfer predictions, um, I I had Liverpool and I, I made a, a fairly, what I thought to be, solid argument about how you don't want to mess with that because that works so well. So you want to hire someone who can back it up. You want to get someone who's not directly competing. And they've clearly gone to an extent against that. I mean, Luis Diaz obviously isn't at the level of Mohamed Salah or Sadio Mane at the moment, but it is a more ambitious signing than I imagined when I put myself in their shoes for who I would want to pick up in January. So... Yeah, it, it's um it's an interesting point. I think um whether or not he is being brought in to replace someone like Mane or Salah or give them the op- opportunity to replace them if they want, or if he's just another um same thing as as Diogo Jota, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think um the amount of money they spent on him, thirty seven million, is right in that that um like middle ground for it could be either a very solid backup or, you know, someone that they they want to to compete. I mean, I think they bought um they bought Diego Yotta for almost exactly the same amount of money. So, you know, it's gonna be really interesting as you say. I love that point you've made. Um I can't wait to see, you know, what it means for Liverpool. Yeah, definitely fun, fantastically interesting. Uh let's I, I look- just uh, before we moved on, I just wanna talk about an idea that I had that I, I feel uh, contractually obliged to mention. Um, sure. I- imagine, imagine if uh, Burnley had signed Luis Suarez. <laughs> that would be incredible. Yeah. Would that not have been a really good signing? I don't know where they would have got the the cash for that for. I mean, it, I, th- I mean, I think he he's he's kind of on the out at Atletico at the moment. Um, so it would have just been being able to afford his wages. But you know, Luis Suarez has. Uh, you know, probably more defenders that he'd like to bite in England than than most other leagues. So he he might well have, have taken them up on it. You, I mean, you get the sense that with, with Luis, I mean, maybe he's really reformed, but he did it three times, didn't he? You, you you do feel like, especially when he knows his career's going to an end anyway, he'll be like one last ride, <laughs> going out with a bang, <laughs> ride or die, and, and, and just like eat a player. 
I I think I think um, Burnley and uh, and Suarez would have been a match made in heaven, but maybe that's just me. Think of the fight, the passion. Anyway. Let's wrap up by looking at... We started off by looking at two clubs that had, had very, very active windows and how that had changed. There are three clubs, uh, and uh, we can spend as much or as little time on this as, as, as you like because we are coming a little bit close to time, but I just think it's interesting to flag this. Three clubs here that are in very similar positions in the table, very similar fortunes, all have uh, presumably the same aim because none of them are winning the league, uh, and that is to make top four. That's West Ham, Arsenal, and Manchester United. Um, three clubs that have, as I mentioned there, been united by their their position on the table this season, their their common goals, and also now their action, or indeed lack thereof, in the January window. It's really bizarre to have seen all three of these clubs not do anything, because they're all at this big make-or-break stage of the season, they want to push into the top four, they're competing against each other, and they've done nothing. Um, And looking at West Ham first, I just think it's such a weird decision for them, because yes, on paper, West Ham fans can't really be too unhappy about another top six finish, but it could be a really missed, a really big missed opportunity this window to kick on to the next level. They, the whole season, have sort of not ridden their luck because I wouldn't say they've been lucky in the results, but just in terms of someone like Antonio not getting injured for huge periods as he usually does. And as we've discussed many times, it just takes one injury for Antonio and it's Jared Byrne filling in at striker, which he's done pretty well at so far, but it's a real big di- roll of the die, especially if he gets injured as well because he's suddenly playing every game. So... I think it's it, it's a real red flag there. I also think it's a red flag to players like Jared Byrne or Declan Rice, who, you know, they're constantly trying to hang on to Declan Rice. They've put a huge valuation on him. But if you're Declan Rice and you're seeing the club do nothing in a window when you could really kick on and qualify for the Champions League, the tournament that and, all players And where other people in, are doing a lot. And where other players... You, you, you really might be sitting there and thinking, Christ, this is as far as the club wants us to go. Like, they don't have any interest in us going to the next level. I'm going to leave in the summer. It's... It is tricky. It's worrying. Yeah, I agree with you. I think West Ham especially have been building up and up constantly for the last couple of years in a really exciting way. And you would imagine that they would want to keep doing that. You would imagine that they would be, you know, bringing in players, as you say, to fill in what are, you know, quite a few, not holes, but, you know, places that could could use much more cover. Um, it's surprising, it's it's concerning, and I, I do wonder if, I don't want to say it's going to spell the beginning of the end because that feels too melodramatic, but I don't like the fact that David Moyes has been doing so well and then maybe West Ham, the club, have turned around and gone, you don't need anyone, you're doing great. And David Moyes going, no, please, <laughs> I need new signings. This can't last. And them going, ah, you're going to be fine. Because how many times have we seen that with you know managers just not getting the the continued support that they need, especially when they're doing well. Um, so that just a little bit of a, a little red flag for me when it comes to West Ham. And then Man U. I mean, I don't know what to say about Man U. Uh, baffling. Um, we we yeah, talked a lot to about sign a midfielder instead they've loaned one out. Oh my gosh, we've we've talked a lot about <laughs> the fact that Man U just really need a couple of new players. Um, and. You would imagine that Man U would know that Man U need new players, but apparently not. Um, they've it not done anything. It kind of just anything. feels like, with, with, with these three teams, and I'll talk about the final one, Arsenal, in a second, but just from a, looking at the all threes level, it kind of feels like whichever one of these teams had just made one signing would have then been the one to finish fourth. But in a way, they've all kind of been let off the hook by each other because none of them have made a signing. 
Well, that's true. And or are they just all going to drop down? And, well, and yeah, new exactly. People they, will they all take their place. Spurs, like... who who fills in? Yeah. Well, exactly. Um, I do wonder. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about how like um, I always felt like David Moyes at, at Man U made a couple of like really rogue signings, like Marouane Fellaini from Everton, and I I always felt like it was they were the kind of like and Juan Mata from from Chelsea when it didn't really suit their system. Um, I always felt like it was like people going like, hey, you want this shiny new thing? And him going, oh my God, I've got to have it. So I wonder if Man U are actually the problem. And it was never David Moyes. And Man U were going like, oh my God, we need all these players. And every time the management like, Lord God, please don't spend 30 million on Marin Fellaini. I've played with him so many times. We don't need him. Um, and I wonder if this time maybe Man U were going like, Oh, 50 million for this random player, you say. Can we get him? Can we get him, Ralph? And Ralph going, please, no, I'll just take no one. Yeah, but yeah, very possibly. Could could have definitely that, especially because, as we know, he's uh, obviously the manager for now, but he's going to get that consultancy role. So maybe doing part of that already by basically just sort of like putting blindfolds over <laughs> Edward with the other decision makers. <laughs> or uh, or is it, is, has Edward been left already? I think he might have. So maybe that's... that's Don't look at the role. pretty colours. Look away. Um, but uh, the, the, the last club to talk about is Arsenal. Arsenal have had a very weird window as well. Um, we talked about United there losing one midfielder. Arsenal have just spent the window jettisoning Deadwood from the squad, um, just getting rid of loads and loads of players, some of whom you look at, like a Kolasnat, for example, or even to a degree the players like Callum Chambers and Ainsley Maitland-Niles, who did a job but were never really good enough to be playing for a side that wants to be at very at the very top four. But what's weird about it is that they've got rid of all these players and they've got rid of the sort of like burden on the wage budget and they freed up all this money and then not signed any replacements. So they now have to play the rest of the season with a really thin squad. Admittedly, they are now out of both the cups and not playing in Europe, so they only have the league to worry about. But a very, very, very light squad. And we've already seen over the games they played in January how losing, for example, Ainsley Maitland-Niles hurt them. Now, I maintain that he is not the level of player that you would want if you're wanting to be a top four or, or winning the league level of club. But as a utility player, being able to play at right back, midfield, on the right, you know, on one of the wings if needed, he was really, really useful. And in the games, like for example, the Burnley game that Arsenal dropped points in, he would have been really, really useful. So I don't understand why they got rid of him so early before getting a replacement in. And I just think it, it's emblematic of Arsenal at the moment, this sort of Arteta project. Sometimes it seems so focused on sort of the future and sort of looking at all these sort of like young players who are going to come up someday and be really good and sort of gambling on that idea of the future and sort of going, ah, okay, let's get rid of these players because in the long term, they're not going to suit our vision of being a top four club or winning the league club. And in the long term, this doesn't work. But they're so fixated on the future that they just forget to think about the present. And what seems to me to have happened here with no signings is, yes, I agree that Mainzie Mendenhals and Callum Chambers, as examples, aren't at the level you want long term, but they're better than no players. <laughs> and Arsenal seem to have not realised that. It's, yeah, it's... Oh, I just feel like every time we talk about this in depth, like transfers in depth, we, we kind of need to almost lead with like the disclaimer that Premier League clubs aren't run in a professional way. Do not expect them to be so. Um, because... <laughs> yeah. You look at this, the behaviour of someone like Arsenal and you just think, this makes zero sense. From just a logical, rational, I'm outside it so I can see the, see the whole picture, but not the inner workings that are maybe making it all really murky and cloudy. Um, I I mean, you hearing you talk about that, I, I did wonder, um, how long ago do you reckon, Cam? Like, how recently do you think, if you told an Arsenal fan 
that a Pierre Emerick was dead wood, would they have punched you in the face? Well, Three, like this time last year. <laughs> this time Probably. last year. Do you think six months ago, if you said that, everyone would have been like, yeah, fair. Uh, no, too too early six months ago. Because he had, he started the season not too badly. He had like a couple of goals in the league and a couple of goals in the. I think he had like eight goals across the league and the and the cups. Um, and obviously padding against some sort of lower league sides. But I, I don't think he his first couple of months weren't terrible. And then it's just they they weren't great, but they weren't terrible. And then it's so it started to just sort of feel like maybe he was in a bit of a bad period of form, and then it's just gone horribly. And now he's been released for free, which is just a, another bizarre situation because it's like, I understand, but not necessarily agree with Arteta's assessment that he was sort of beyond saving. He was sort of a really reckless character. And we saw, you know, he was being very reckless, even on international duty, went out clubbing with Mary Lamina. So I think there was, you know, definitely some issues going on there. I also happen to think that sometimes those issues could be straightened out by the right manager. But also sometimes they, they can't be if it's happening across club and country, who's to say? But the fact they've let him go for free just seems weird. Like Barcelona have been digging out money from behind the sofa for every player they've looked at this summer. They've paid City, a team that really don't need that kind of money, like 50 million for Ferran Torres. And then when it's come to Arsenal, they've gone, give for free? And Arsenal have gone, yeah, go on then. <laughs> give for free? Yeah, I mean, do you know what I, I was thinking about a little bit this this window? It almost feels like these Premier League clubs have like a banter clause fitted into their Premier League contracts or like some sort of like chaos element of their contracts where, you know, if they're seen to be doing anything too rational, too consistently, the officials come along and they're like, hey, no, no, I'll cut that out. So like, right. I don't know. Everton, for example, they're like, you know, buying a bunch of, of like players that are going to help reform their defence and, and boss their attack. And, and then the Premier League comes like, hey, watch yourself. And they're like, OK, OK, we'll get Frank Lampard and it'll all go wrong. Or or even someone like Aston Villa making a couple of really, really good signings like Luca Dina, Coutinho, players like that. And then being like, Premier League comes on and goes, this isn't going to cut it, and they go, "Okay, we'll take Callum Chambers as well." Then, um, well, that's that, that's the thing. It was it was it was such a sort of like monkey's paw transfer window for Arsenal because, like, at the very start of the window, or even like halfway through, you looked at them getting rid of players like Ainsley Maitland-Niles or Callum Chambers quite late, but like Kalasnach and a few different players, or Paolo Mario's another one, and you went okay, this is actually pretty good. Like Arsenal, you know, again, trimming the fat. They're probably not going to make any sort of massive, massive signings. There was a blink with Vlavic, but everyone in the know said that that was never going to happen. But like, you, you looked at who they were linked to. Uh, so sorry, so you looked at sort of what they were doing, trimming the squad, and you thought, okay, this is actually pretty smart. If they make a couple yeah, of sensible, good signings, good, like yeah. Isaac was the one who was linked, Alexander Isaac, you thought, that's a really smart signing, or Calvin Loom was another one who was linked. You thought, okay, that's really smart. That's really sensible. But then they sort of, they did the first bit, and then they, I guess, forgot to sign any players. So it was just the monkey's paw, which is like, <laughs> you will offload all the deadwood, but bring in no new players. Ha, 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 ha. I think it's something like, um, like one in five things just gets like randomly rejected. So it's like, we're going to get rid of all these players and then we're going to sign someone. And it's like, yep, approved, approved, approved. What is your, what is your one thing that won't come true? Oh, sorry, no one signed. Unlucky, unlucky Arsenal. It just, I, I, I just... It feels to me, and this is like such a not even making sense analogy because this is so much more important than that, but it's like if you were selling for whatever reason or getting rid of an old mattress because you were planning on buying a new one, you would buy the new one before you drove the old one down to the dump, right? You wouldn't get rid of the mattress and then be like, oh yeah, now I'll buy... And and even that is like such an inadequate 
metaphor because mattresses aren't in short supply. You can get one pretty easily within like an hour. But like, but but even taking that into account, you wouldn't be like, okay, I'm gonna get rid of it and then buy one because you'd be like, there's a chance I'm gonna get caught short here and I'm gonna be sleeping on the bed frame. I so guess the, how tr- do the clubs <laughs> so frequently do this thing where they're like, let's sell the asset, and then they're like, oh no, the replacement isn't available. Like, get get the contract signed at least, or like, you know, get it in front of people. I guess, but like, so okay, like to to extend the metaphor, imagine if you like you come out of the kitchen and your mattress is like one foot out the door, and you're like. That's not where I left you. <laughs> and then <laughs> at the same time, someone knocks on the door and is like, hey, I'll give you 50 million for that mattress. You might you might be forgiven for being like, okay, but that's not well... What, but that's not what Arsenal have done. They let Aubameyang go for free and they let uh, Ainsley Maitland-Noss go on loan. <laughs> they didn't get true, free True, true. But, I mean, but the, the value is also in the amount of, of money off their wage budget that they're saving. But yes, you're right. Um, he's gone for zero like actual fee um but yeah if someone was like hey it'll it'll save you hundreds of thousands of pounds a week to, to, to let this mattress go i i would be you know probably considering it but i hear what you're saying it's well, dumb. Yeah, so, so would i which is why it's an inadequate na- analogy because you know ultimately for enough money i would sleep on the bed frame for one night if there was a mattress buying window <laughs> and i could not buy a mattress outside of that window i'd be a little bit more hesitant <laughs> <laughs> the window for buying mat- the DFS sale only runs from in January. <laughs> <laughs> you buy a match for a reasonable price between December thirty first and January thirty first only. <laughs> or agree some sort of pre contract for a mattress in, in July. For a mattress to come in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> It does seem that uh, either way you look at it, you're going to be accepting a little bit of a a loss in the quality of life for uh, about six months at least. Um, It it, it definitely seems that way. And I think, (laughs) unless you have another point to add on, it seems like we've we've talked ourselves into delirium here. Um, (laughs) So I think it might be a good place to call it quits for today. I think it probably is. Um, Well, um, you know, as ever, let's see how all of these signings pan out. Presumably, even amongst all of the bizarre ones that we've talked about, a couple will go well. So that's going to be fun. Um, but until then, Cam, thank you very much. Uh, thanks very much to you as well, Reaper. And thank you all for listening. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshul.